and welcome to the Noisy Hadger podcast. I do need to say that when I say hello, I never know how to say hello properly. I actually sent around a few friends a clip of my trailer for this and one friend said, oh, the way you said hello is a bit unnatural and that is because whenever I've introduced a podcast and said hello, I don't know how to say it. Do you know what I mean? No, just me. Anyway, that was 25 seconds on the word hello. Um, how has your week been? I hope everything is going well. Uh, mine is, mine's all right. My week's doing okay. It's had a bit of a strange day. Well, strange. I haven't left the house today. I had every intention of leaving the house. But instead, I faffed about because I'm going to Devon this weekend and I designed the menu and I decided I was going to design the menu for this trip to Devon because I know a few people going but it's not like my best friends we'll have a great time but I always like to know what I'm doing on these weekends so I thought I'm gonna take control of the cooking (laughs) um so if they hear this it's not because I'm trying to be antisocial, but I do just like to have something to occupy me uh, because otherwise what will happen actually I think is I'll end up Uh, worrying about work so I thought I'll do the cooking and it's quite nice I quite like designing menus and potentially poisoning people so we'll see Uh, anyway so I did that this morning and then I made some really bad food just some really bad food choices spinach and zata nah doesn't really I I started making some spinach and I thought I'll have some spinach with eggs and then I started rifling through the cupboards and I found the zata. So then I had a whole pitta with some olive oil and some and zata. Look up zata if you don't know what it is. Um, Ottolenghi made it famous, but we used to have it when I was a kid. I remember we used to have it by the tub and mum always used to say, oh, in the region they eat this, they have lower heart disease, which I believe. Anyway, um, I had that and then I decided in a moment of madness to put it on spinach um, and it's quite a dusty consistency zata. So nah. Would not recommend. So if anyone's listening to this who is going to Devon this weekend, that probably gives you not a great idea about how the cooking's going to go. Right. (laughs) What else? Yeah, did some cooking. And then I decided at 11 that I was going to watch a film. I do have stuff to do during the day. I just, because my partner's away, he's in Singapore at the Grand Prix at the moment. Because he's away, I thought... I don't really need to stick to the nine to five kind of thing. I don't need to make sure that we have time in the evening together. So I do sort of trust that come like one or two o'clock, I'm going to get work done, which is what has happened because it's now nine o'clock in the evening and I've done um, a good amount of of work and podcast editing and stuff. So there we go. Yeah. Anyway, watch the film Age of Adeline, which I quite like, um, 2015 film uh, with the glorious Blake Lively who I love and want to be. So then obviously I started making a list of like everything I need to be perfect from like hairstyles in the morning, you know, to I need to get like a, not a Dyson thing, not a straightener, just something that means you can make your hair look nice in the morning. I don't, it's a good start. I don't even know what you'd call that. Not, not like curling tongs, just, I don't know. People seem to have all these newfangled kind of things they use at the moment. So something like that. I didn't get very far on this list of how to be perfect. But uh, I did get to makeup and hair. (laughs) Anyway, what else? Yeah, I haven't left the house. I was going to, but never mind. I'm just going to embrace it. I'm leaving the house tomorrow. That's fine. I've also been reading a book called The Courage to Be Disliked, which is really, really interesting and making me think very differently, albeit temporarily. But it's about Adler's theory Adler being some sort of psychologist, psychotherapist, psychiatrist type person, I think Austrian. And I think he was a contemporary of Freud or sort of just after, I don't know. Anyway, this book is a fictional discussion between a philosopher and a student. And the student is trying to understand the philosopher's perspectives on Adler's theories around the self and our emotional state and sort of decoupling the determinism of upbringing. So it's kind of anti-trauma. It basically, some of the stuff I picked up from it is that, you know, when you don't realise, you don't know something until you actually have to explain it. And I'm realising I don't know it. But so it's kind of, yeah, anti-trauma. So 
the idea is that you look back on things in your life and attach a different value to them, attach a different meaning. So unlike Freud, he says that Freud is all about this sense of because you had a traumatic childhood, therefore bad stuff will happen or you'll go through this. Like everything is kind of predetermined, like you have very limited control over how you act. Whereas Adler's theory is about what meaning do you attach to those things and what is your goal of doing them? So, for example, there's some some sort of example like imagine if you have a really terrible childhood and you turn to drugs and all this sort of thing. And the idea is not that because you had a terrible childhood, therefore you turn to drugs. It's actually in turning to drugs, your goal is to sort of correct that in a way. So your goal might be to get back at your parents or it might be to get the attention that you want. But it's it's really fascinating and it's quite humbling because I definitely, definitely, definitely have over many years become more victim mentality, but in a sort of conflicted way. I hate myself acting like a victim, but then, oh, I hate myself, so therefore I feel like a victim. Or you find reasons to justify mood and all this sort of thing. So it's giving me a lot to think about. And yeah, we could you could sort of just say it comes back down to the, you know, crack on with it sort of mentality, which is, you know, no excuses, get on with it. But I think it, it goes further than that because it's actually, you still have to understand yourself, I think, to get to this point. But it's looking at your past, potentially. I, I'm only halfway through it, but it's been really, some really, really interesting stuff. Um, I've actually, there's a second book I've read in, um, or been reading in like two weeks after like a dry spell of about a year. But yeah, what meaning do you attach to the things that have affected you or make you feel that you are acting in a certain way? And so that has been really, really interesting. And just in reading it at the moment, I'm feeling a bit more of a sense of crack the fuck on, (laughs) you know, adjust your perspective on things and what are your goals rather than your excuses. But this book has been really um, groundbreaking and I love it. You know, when you pick up a book and you're like, wow, how come I got, how come I picked up this book? What is it about this book? Because I only briefly read the blurb and the first page, I was just like, okay, we'll give this a go. And I picked up lots of books, but this one I really... I mean, obviously, it's quite it's quite a good title, The Courage to Be Disliked. But yeah, looking at excuses and looking at things in your past. And this is actually coincidentally relevant to today's episode because I will be sharing an interview with Jess in Piazzi. And she is utterly joyous, a glorious, glorious person. I met her a couple of years ago. I was interviewing her Um, about her new book which was called Silver Linings for the book podcast I had called Dabbler's Book Club and she's all about being positive and you know playing the hand you're dealt and self-forgiveness and sort of freeing yourself of all that judgment and all this kind of thing so um, I'll get on to what we talk about in a minute but because she sort of has this attitude, um, it's, it's just really interesting that I'm putting this episode out in, in the week that I'm reading this book so I felt just a little bit more responsible you know and we do go in phases of this and I I, I, yeah it's interesting I do think for a long time even though I have this voice in my head that is telling me to get on with it stop making excuses I don't think that's actually what I believe all the time because sometimes I think this is just who I am and this is why And the principle of the book is about can you change who you are or can you be the person you want to be? And the answer is, of course, but not in the way that we go on about it in, you know, modern popular culture and all these sort of make your millions kind of schemes and everything. And, you know, we've all got the same 24 hours in the day bullshit. It's not about that. This is about understanding that you can change to a really deep level and shifting your perspective on your motivations. So yeah, that's the that's the main thing in my life at the moment, a book, but I am really enjoying it and I'm looking forward to reading it tonight at bedtime after I've eaten something and maybe showered. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So today's episode is with Jess Impiazzi, who I said I met um, a couple of years ago, just online. We've only met in person once or twice, 
Have we met in person? We might not have met in person. It feels like we have um, because we we text every now and again and we worked on a few projects together um, since since we met on the book podcast. She is utterly wonderful. I think she's probably my most famous friend I know. She makes newspaper headlines and all that sort of thing. She has a very, very glamorous lifestyle, but she is an actor and her comedy series is out on Amazon Prime right now. It was released, I think, on Wednesday. It came out, yeah, it came out on Wednesday and it's called Keep Calm and Carry On. And she's got a load of other acting projects coming up as well. And it's amazing to see all this happening for her because I think for a long time she didn't think she could pursue the acting dream. She was a model and did reality TV and all this sort of thing. And we talk a bit about the sort of internal work she had to do to help her believe in herself again and uh, believe that she could could be an actor as she had always wanted to be. But that isn't the main uh, focus of this conversation. Jess's father passed away recently and she'd always had a bit of a tumultuous relationship with him, a bit fractured in parts. And when he got sick with terminal cancer, Jess was there for him till his final breath. And she's very open about this journey. She did a few Instagram posts on it. But obviously, as someone who has a, you know, has an interesting relationship with her own father and with friends who also have similar complicated feelings, I really wanted to talk to her about what that was all like and how she was able to show so much love It's a really painful, but in many ways, beautiful, beautiful experience. And I think it's testament to just what a heart of gold (laughs) this woman has. So I would love you to listen to this episode. Obviously, if you're feeling delicate, then proceed with (laughs) self-hugs. But there are lots of jewels in this conversation. And in fact, after we spoke... There was a bereavement on my Iranian side of the family and even though I haven't spoken to my dad in a couple of years, I did actually send send a card and we have broken the two-year silence um, with just a couple of messages each way. So I'm not saying that things change or transform at all, but listening to Jess speak about the value of love and helping someone feel loved was really quite something. This is Jess in Piazzi. I hope you take as much from this conversation as I did. Enjoy. You seem very open on like, yeah, your Instagram and all that. You're kind of, yeah, which I love because it makes me feel sort of, you know, when you do you, do you ever feel like you're an oversharer and at the end of the party you're like, oh shit, I just said so much and why did I tell that person this, that and the other? Yeah, but strangers and I'm like, yeah, how nice to meet you. So dad just died of cancer, <laughs> mum's blind and I'm like, fuck, yes, why, why is this coming out your mouth? <laughs> it's like, to be mysterious. Just, I always wanted to be mysterious. Uh, my sister was the quiet one. And it's like, I'd get to the end of the day and be like, oh, I've talked too much, shouldn't have talked to boys, shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done yes. this. And you and question everything when you get in bed, you're like, well, what have I done? Yeah, and but also because you're, I imagine you're like, you're very empathic as well and you, you care about yeah. people. You don't want people to feel awkward or sort of lent upon yeah, or yeah, yeah. anything. Um, tell me tell me how it's been um, with your dad, if you don't mind talking about that, because you posted, a, you know, obviously a heartbreaking photo a few weeks ago and um, you'd shared with your Instagram followers that, you know, he was dying and it's been not an easy relationship, um, which I and many <laughs> listeners will, re- will relate to, I imagine. Yeah, tell me how that, tell me how that's been for you. Yeah, so, I mean, the story of my dad is like, my mum and dad were never really together for that long. I don't remember them ever being together. So, you know, I was a baby when they broke up. But I used to see him every weekend and he'd take me to Butlins. And then as they got got older, maybe in my mid-teens, maybe just before, he was drinking a lot. And then obviously when I get to 18, I just didn't want to go down there as much. And he just declined rapidly into alcoholism. And for 10 years, that put a real strain on our relationship because I didn't want to go down there. You know, it got to the point where he wouldn't remember birthdays, you know. But back then, I thought of it as like, oh, he doesn't love me. And I didn't have any emotional intelligence. So I, I couldn't understand that if someone's not loving themselves, they're not going to be able to show that to you. But he he loved me greatly. I was the apple of his eye. But he couldn't express that because of his own problems. So 
he went into hospital maybe about eight years ago and I because I was trying to get hold of him and I couldn't and it was about six weeks so I drove down thinking he might be dead in his house I didn't know because he hasn't really got anyone else it was just my dad and then I found him in A&E he had ruptured something in his stomach and they realized he's an alcoholic and long story short he got sent back home and then he just rapidly declined as in um he had vascular dementia and Alzheimer's um one one of them is brought on by alcohol consumption and cigarette smoking because he was just all day long cigarettes 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 and then he went quite rapidly down again and to the point where he was self-neglecting um nails were growing all over the place um, the house had maggots in so me and my mum kind of went down she was helping me like my mum's blind so she's good on the phone with like the banks so those all chasing him he hadn't paid a bill remortgaging the house trying to make it so he didn't leave, leave the house um so he got a kind of thing in order to make sure there was some sort of order around him so we'd have cleaners go in I would go down every Monday with food supplies his cigarettes and whatnot after that the alcohol stocks obviously he wouldn't leave the house at this point because he was so bad and that went on for a good four or five years and then I went down there the, the carers couldn't get in one day and I drove down and this was in the lockdown and near the end of the lockdown so it was last year about May last year and I found he was passed out on the floor, but he could speak, but he couldn't move. So I got a locksmith to break down the door for me. And I ran up and called the ambulance and he went into hospital. They sent him back out again. So he was just covered in infections, like water infections, every infection you can imagine. They cleaned him up for about two weeks in the hospital, sent him home with a care package, which just wasn't good enough because he, they were just leaving him at nighttime. And he needed, at this point, 24-hour care. But whilst he was in hospital, they found the lung cancer. And... I kicked off. I said, look, the carers can't get in again. I've left a key. They're leaving him. He's been in bed. He can't get out of bed. The carer left him in bed because she couldn't get him out. That's not acceptable. So we moved him to near my house and put him in a care home around here. And I felt so much more comfortable because he was being cleaned, washed properly. He was, he kind of came back to himself a bit, even though he had the brain illnesses with Alzheimer's and stuff. He kind of came back because he was, he was, didn't have the stresses of having to get up and down stairs and, you know, he had proper full-time 24-7 care. And that year that he was here, I could see him every day or most days. And it kind of, it healed a 10-year relationship, even though he wasn't necessarily all there. It was, it, it just felt like we'd started afresh. And I, I, I like to pull out the silver linings as the title of the book, but it's because in that year, if my dad had just passed in his house that day when I went down and found him, nothing would have ever been resolved. But for this year of him having lung cancer and being in there, we made sure he wasn't in pain. He had his morphine and patches and all them kind of things. We got to, I could sit and talk to him. Even if I didn't get much of a response, I could sit and talk to him. So in a way, the cancer is never a nice thing. It's awful, but it gave us an opportunity to heal something. And I was there for him when he took his last breath and I was holding his hand while he passed on to wherever you go next. And that's all I ever wanted because he didn't have anyone else there was no one else and I always said look no matter what I'll be here till the end and he didn't even know he had cancer I think it was just like you know he got told he didn't, didn't really know anything and just to be there with him at the end was just so important to me but it also moved him into the next place and I know he was loved and and that's all I wanted him to know that he was loved because he didn't love himself enough and me being there he knew he was loved. And, we, and one thing he never forgot was when I when I left the hospice, I'd always say, I love you, dad. And he'd say, I love you too. And and that wasn't happening for years and years and years. So we, we got that in. And I don't know, it's just a very healing year in a sad circumstance. Yeah, gosh. I mean, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> trying not to cry already. Um, <laughs> what do you think the role of healing, of, of caring for someone has in healing? Like, what do you think it does to us? I feel like we all get caught up in what someone may have done or what we feel someone has done to us or how our feelings are of how their life has been and we're all gonna die fact none of us can avoid that thing we just don't know when but when you're kind of told when and you know it's more imminent than not you realize how insignificant all that is and no matter what's gone on with someone the thought that actually, you know, they're not going to be here anymore, it puts things into perspective of what actually matters. So I realized at that point, 
even if my dad hated me and didn't want me there, I was still giving him love. And he did. He did want me there, completely wanted me there. If he didn't, I still get to show someone love, even if they don't want it. But it it just wiped the slate because you, you're now looking at, you're never going to see this person again. Eventually, you know it's coming soon. So what matters in that moment? Love. That's the only thing that matters. Whether he was an alcoholic for 10 years and his decisions made bad things happen in his life, made problems happen to me that's insignificant because now you're faced with never seeing them again so why would I sit there and think oh dad you you kind of deserted me for 10 years or you made me feel this type of way because right now I'm facing that I'm not going to see you again so the only thing that matters is how much love I can give you in that moment before before the end comes you know we all get caught up in things that aren't important because of how it makes us feel and I think you know once you can shift those feelings out the only thing that matters in life is love and that's it I mean I know you do a lot of sort of soul searching and digging deep anyway all the books we talked about (laughs) on the book podcast when we met um, a couple of years ago were you know very much kind of self-improvement and and spirituality and understanding the brain what sort of work had you kind of done beforehand when it came to your dad because obviously you weren't talking you weren't seeing him had you done some of that work before you went around to to check on him and then no when I when I first found because we didn't talk for maybe a couple of years um and I, I must have been about 19 19 20 so I didn't really start to figure my own head out until I was about 27 28 so it was quite far distance mm-hmm. but so that whole period I was kind of like uh, almost resentful of him and I would go and do this and I never stopped sending food down I would never have left him, but I, I just felt you don't love me, like you. Oh, you don't love me. Otherwise, you'd have you wouldn't be like this. Or, or why are you doing this? When you say sending food down, do you mean so the this is when you were twenty seven and the first time you because you said it's been eight years, right? So when from, from when everything? I think at eighteen he was still all right, but we, it was the alcohol, so I just didn't really talk. And it wasn't until I was about twenty five that. I noticed the big problem was there. And that's when I started sending food as in like Tesco's deliveries down every Monday. So he was eating because I noticed when I was married, I was getting a lot of phone calls. I moved up to Leeds or Manchester and um, I was getting a lot of phone calls. Oh, can you send me this? Can you send me some money? And I was thinking something is seriously wrong here. And then, you know, at 20, that's when I started sending the food deliveries around 25, 26. And then that just carried on and really until, till we, till now um, when he went into the hospice, but I, cause I was living so far away it wasn't you know it's cause it was at the time it caused a bit of problems in my marriage because I was sending money to my dad and you know they were like well why are you sending 40 cigarettes down like because he wants them that's he didn't understand my situation and no matter what's gone on I'm not going to desert someone I've, I've got a bit of a problem when it comes to I'm not very good at detaching I think when you've come from a troubled childhood you can take on the act of caregiver or you can go the opposite way and you know, there's like four different, I talked to a therapist about it not that long ago, and there's just four different things, personality traits that you'll take on or roles you take on if you've come from some troubles. And mine was obviously caregiver. And to this day, I can't stop doing that. But rather than now, I don't look at it as in, oh, I need to stop doing that. I think to myself, okay, that is a part of me. And that's what I like to do. But I need to make sure I can do that because that gives me a purpose. I, I need to be doing that but at the same time, not draining myself. So that's where I need to find the balance. Um, and I'm working on that still. Like I think it'll always be a progress. I, I don't think you ever stop learning to care for yourself. I wonder if it's, um, I mean, I always bring class into it, um, but like, I also wonder if it's like a class thing as well. Like I was raised, obviously I've got a bit of a weird background, but the working class side of me is like, yeah, the women are the caregivers. You you work and you work and you work and you give yourself and you give yourself. Mm. And some, I think really resist that and they really manage to f- hold on to themselves and they're like, you know, fuck you, I'm not doing it, I don't want to do it. And then others, it's like this constant digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And yeah, it's that balance of, is this draining me? Is this not? I mean, and I think it's beautiful that you're, you know, you're able to go, look, this is always going to be part of me. And you'll probably end up still having periods where, oh, I'm drained. Mm. Okay, I need to stop. Oh, I'm drained. I need to stop. Um, and I've literally written down as you just said it, because I was like, <laughs> you, you seem to have a real sense of duty, especially when it comes to your parents. I know we talked about you looking after your mum and, you know, you're an ambassador for Guide Dogs of the Blind. You know, you do all these things. Um, talk to me about that sense of duty as well, because I know there's obviously deep fucking depths of love. It's just like, <laughs> it's like so heartwarming but yeah what does duty mean to you as well in this context 
I think a lot of the time, so I'd say purpose, it gives you a sense of purpose, but at the same time, it's just been something that's been so ingrained in me and not through someone else. It's just that when I was younger and things were kicking off at home with other parts of the family, at such a young age, I was trying to make sure everyone was okay. I don't know how to not do that. So I don't even know if it is something I feel I'm I'm bound to do and I'm, it's my duty. It's just, it's almost like I'm trained to do it <laughs> like just because I don't know anything else. I don't know how to not do that. And I don't mind that I do that. But like I said, it's just finding that that balance now to make sure when it, it seems to happen with me a lot, it'll all come at once. So this year has been... I got my first job on the BBC with an acting job that I was so buzzing about. But then at the same time, there was dad issues, mum issues, boyfriend things going on. And it was just a lot. And I have to, I had to kind of, for the first time ever, kind of put some of it to the side and hold on to my work that I've been trying so hard on. Because my, my problem is, is that if I have PTSD and I think I'm nearly recovered, I'm doing really well with it. But when things are very intense, a fog comes over and I can't focus. If I could look at a script for an hour and I couldn't tell you the first word I read, I, I can't remember it because in my head's got like six different things going on, like warning signs that I've got to sort out. So it's just now trying to learn to detach myself when things get too hard because day-to-day -day life, I've, I've built some great tools. Uh, it's almost like they're not tools anymore. They're just life. And I think coming out of how I used to be when I was fully in PTSD and had no idea it was there to the person I am now, it was building a bridge to walk across to then live the other life. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, like your habits vanish yeah. because they're no longer your coping mechanisms because you've trained yourself with these new ones that now your life is that. So I can't even recognize the person I was. It feels like different lifetimes for me. Yeah, there's, um, I can't remember if it was a quote or something some author said about I, I've lost touch with all the people I was kind of thing. Mm. And it's like, yeah, I, you yeah. know, you don't recognize them the older you get. But it's always interesting to me because, you know, when you think, oh my God, I was such a terrible person when I was younger, I was like this and like this. And yet we still have friends from childhood. And you're yeah. like, and, <laughs> and yet you're still like, what is it about this that means you're still there even though I think back to who I was and I'm cringing I'm thinking of the terrible things I said and mm. I can't remember the terrible things they said or did you know only so, yeah. no, no, so I'm sure it works the same way but um yeah holding on to those you're like god but someone must have liked me through all those yeah versions. well I think also it's like forgiving yourself because there's parts you know I, I went to theatre school I had a full-on scholarship and all these situations happened in my life that I ended up doing modelling and reality TV now I have no problem with that if that's what you want to do but it's not what I wanted to do so I look back and I'm like I, I used to feel utter shame that I'd done that and I couldn't bear to talk about it with anyone because I was like it's gonna if I hide this even though it's all over the internet if I hide this I might get an acting job but if anyone finds out I'm in trouble but everyone's going to find out because you just google it it's, it's literally all over the internet and I'm and I was so ashamed of it and it took me only until probably the last year and a half two years that I've really kind of felt okay with that because I'm like you know what at that time that's all I knew how to survive and I did it and and you know what I, I don't know where I would have been if I hadn't have had that that little lifeline and I'm proud of that because I'm proud that I managed to 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 getting some money for our home because mum had lost her job and her eyesight. I'm proud that I, you know, I managed to build from what could have gone one real dark way and pull it back round. And and I now think instead of being ashamed of that and ashamed of the stupid behaviour that I did when I was younger to get validation, I'm proud that I can now show younger people that it's never too late because if I can change it around and get my first big acting job as a BBC job you can do it too but it, it depends on your mind and I think that's the real good thing to hold on to it gets rid of the shame for me the shame is so pervasive I mean I because obviously I grew up Muslim and I, my big shame was all around boys and having sex mm. and all that kind of thing it's like and I and even now well I'm definitely now I still have it in my head where I won't do something because I'm preempting the shame I might feel in the future because mm. growing up I mean I remember I'd already lost my virginity to my boyfriend and I remember my mum was talking to me about 
she, we, we never had the sex conversation because I just thought, oh, well, when I get married, that's when I'll think about it. And I was like 18. Um, it was way before I was ready for it. If you're thinking that you're someone who's mm. like basically been raised never even to kiss a boy, it's like you're not ready for sex straight off the bat. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was it was a sort of complex, weird situation. And I remember my mum just telling me without knowing that I'd already had sex, she was like, well, once it's gone, it's gone. And that's it. And that's it. You know, and it's like, and so... You know, I mean, as as well as dealing with all that, that sort of the value side of it and do I even, you know, is this person good for me or anything like that? Or how do I feel about myself? It was, oh, I'm going to hell <laughs> and who will have yeah. me now? And it's, it's the same, it's the same principle. It's women being shamed for doing what they can with the knowledge they have, with the options mm. and opportunities they have. How have you read your, yeah, have you read, I know you're sort of celebrating who you were. And also, I mean, the time has changed, like, right, we're not going to we're not, at least publicly, we're not going to shame women for having, you know, done topless shoots or whatever they want to do because mm. we not understand people a bit better. And I think, I think sort of, we at least claim to be a less of a judgmental society. But yeah, how, how do you battle with that now? Because that feeling of shame, that's not, that doesn't come from what you do. It comes from something else, right? It comes from a fear mm. of being mocked or laughed at or feeling foolish or whatever. Like, how do you balance just day-to-day -day feelings of shame, if you have them at all? Or yeah, well, do you know, I read a book by Gabby Bernstein called The Judgment Detox, and that really helped me. I think you don't know what you don't know. So when you are feeling this and you can't figure out where it's coming from, it's because, we, you know, when I was doing the, the modelling, it was slag, slut, blah, blah, blah. So therefore, I internalise that, and I'm a slag, slut, so fucking I'll keep doing it. Like, that. that's yeah. kind of what you yeah. just do. Um, I'll own it, and then you end up just spiralling down, it, you know, your head goes... But when you stop judging yourself, like I've, I've very much used to validate anything from myself, from other people. I didn't have any self-valuation of what I wanted, who I was. It was all just everything I did was to be valued because I didn't really feel it when I was little. My needs were kind of put aside simply because there was so much crap going on at home that how could anyone even try and figure me out when they can't even figure out what's going on at home? So I, I outsourced it and I was a very little girl. Like when I was like, I didn't start my period till I was 16. I was a real late bloomer because of the stress as a kid. Like the I was 11. was so high. Gee, same as my <laughs> another family member. But, you know, I was so late because I even had to go to the doctors and take estrogen tablets to try and get me to grow because I was like four foot and everyone else in year 11 was like well into five foot two and I just looked like a year seven still. I, I just didn't grow. But now I'm older, I know from reading and some doctors telling me that it was because my stress hormones were so high at such a young age, my body couldn't function properly and grow normally. So I was always trying to be, you know, all my friends are getting boyfriends and I looked like I was at kindergarten. <laughs> but not just how you felt about that, the fact that it was being pointed out to you that there's a problem, like there's not mm. only is there something causing this, but also you need to now be aware of that. So you've got kind of the both sides yeah. of it. Yeah, and I couldn't fit in with my peers because obviously they were getting boyfriends. No boys are interested because I look like a child still. And I think the the validation in the modelling side came from, look, I am a woman. Look, look, I'm, I'm grown up now. And it was all that kind of thing. Get the boob job. Look, I've got boobs. I never had them. And it, it was already, I got teased for not having them. So the first thing I did at 18, boob job. And, you know, to prove, look, I'm a woman. And I think that came from that. So these little things that happen when we're so young, like the, the violence in the home that directly affected my growth, which directly affected my sense of womanhood, which direct, you know, and it all, it all spirals on. So actually, damn, I am proud of that now because I'm, I'm not looking at it thinking, Oh God, they've seen my boobs. Do you know what? I paid for them. So there they are like, <laughs> it, you know, and, and at that I needed that sort of validation at the time. And I don't know how things would have been if I didn't do that or things went different, but I know I had severe depression. I had severe self-image problems and that went on for a long time it's only just I would say now that I'm okay with how I am and how I look and how I feel I was obsessed with weight yeah yeah same here to the point where if I was really stressed I'd stop eating and now is the only time of my life I could say I've been highly stressed this year with loads of things going on and food hasn't even been an issue and I think it's because doing the work in your own head depicting everything that's going on it gives you a sense of self. And now I no longer care what other people think about me. I care about what I think about myself. I've realized the only thing that matters is myself and what I think of that person. Because if I'm feeling a sense of shame, it means there's something I need to work on that's not been healed or fixed within my own mind. If it hasn't been fixed, there's going to be these feelings of shame, guilt, um, jealousy. Uh, if I work on those, I know I'm not doing any harm to anyone. 
I'm also looking after myself and then I can be a better version of myself. So now like things that pop up sometimes, I can get annoyed at the press sometimes. Like, I did a story about my new acting show and they just went in on all the other stuff, which was reality and this and this. And I was like, this is 10 years ago, come yeah. on. And I was only annoyed because I'm like, do you know what? I've moved on, can we? But it didn't give me a sense of shame anymore. Yeah. Well, it's, it's that frustration of will pe- when will people start to see me the way I see myself? And so many people, I think, when they start off with a very strong sense of who they are from a very young age, they carve that from the from the get-go mm. because they're not trying to be stuff because whether through parents or education or money, whatever it is, mm. they're like, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. You know, like my my dream uh, life would be, you know, to imagine just the idea of having two parents who love each other and care about you. You're like their you know mm. not every you're not their be all and end all and everything but they're like right what career do you want okay well this is how you do it and you can stay at home and you can write what you want or you can study acting and don't worry about yeah. anything else because we're helping you set up your life but instead um for a lot of people like us you're raised with this survival mode um mm-hmm. in a world that especially you know where we are we are very privileged there are loads of things that we can do and you know lots of opportunities especially now but you're not aware of that. So you're surviving, surviving, surviving. And you're doing, like you said, with when you're 18, you have this real complex about your boobs. So it's like, right, you have to do the quick fix because until that's done, you'll you'll go the other way. Everything feels, everything adds up. And you must, it's like a problem solving thing. You're like, okay, well, my boobs make me sad. So I'm going to fix that tick. And it did, it gave you a confidence boost. It, you know, it got you your career in many ways and stuff. It Mm. it did set you on, on a certain path that um, gave you that, validation I wonder if we can we even get the validation from that age when there's so much to process and you just you don't know till you know yeah I think the sad thing about it is is that all these things that you do the quick fixes to fix are never ever going to work because it has to come from the inside but that only that knowledge only comes of age so it's like it's like a chicken and an egg I think when I look back would I have done things different no probably not because I didn't know how I, I, you know, there's a problem, you fix it, boom, done. But actually the problem is deeper than that. The problem isn't what it, what you think it is. Cause I think if I had my mindset now and I was 18, so put my brain in my 18 year old self, wouldn't have touched my body, wouldn't have touched anything on myself because I would have been, I'm, I'm comfortable in where I am and who I am. And the pair of boobs don't define me a lip injection. I don't, I won't touch anything on myself now because I'm like, you know what? I'm, I, I love my insides. And my outsides will just reflect that. And it's like Roald Dahl says, if you think happy thoughts, so shine out your face like sunbeams and you'll always be pretty. <laughs> that is the twits, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. One okay. of my faves. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do miss a good Roald Dahl. I was listening to Henry Sugar, actually. I don't know if you've ever read all, read the Henry Sugar story. So it's a collection of Roald Dahl short stories. Mm. But there's a really good audio book. Um, and I was listening to it the other day. It's just a two hour audio, but you can find it on YouTube. It's actually, yeah, it's really I do it's love the old child yeah. stories. The, the nice thing is that the Roald Dahl stories, I'm going completely off topic, but kind of not. But what they do is there's such a a good meaning to all of them. And then there's these like sound bites that he puts in. And it's like, wow, that's such a life lesson. And but you just don't realise it as a kid. And then when you get older, you're like, wow, that was so profound. Yeah. And at the top, yeah, and you don't realise just how much thought has gone into those and how much wisdom has gone into that. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, thank God for Roald Dahl because, yeah, I grew up reading. At least I read as a kid. I think that was one yeah. um, gift. I mean, I sort of went in stages of it, but Roald Dahl and yeah, C.S. Lewis and all that was like a big, yeah, a big part of my childhood. And, and obviously Jane Austen and watching Pride and Prejudice over and over, which I, I often talk about. I think watching, I watched so much Pride and Prejudice that I think it made me think I was middle class and, and belonged in these societies. <laughs> and then you turn up and they're like, you're you don't fit in here. Um, the uh, I mean it, honestly every time I chat to you I'm like oh she's so such a good person and she's so positive <laughs> even though I know you you grapple with so much and especially you know dealing with how the media view you and um and like and, and holding so true to who your perception your self-perception rather than like I mean it's hard especially in this industry because when it comes to this industry I'm not in your industry but in that industry in the arts you're constantly meant to label yourself as a certain thing it's like where do they place mm. you on the shelf or where you know where um I was about to say DVDs there um <laughs> when, when, we're going old school <laughs> we're old school um what VHS uh genre at blockbusters would you be um but yeah so you have to kind of see yourself from the outside and then sometimes if people are telling you you're a certain thing the easiest thing would be like yeah I guess so I guess that's me mm. fine make make me money put me where you need to put me but I so admire your resilience and strength and you're doing all these 
awesome projects now so you keep calm and carry on that's out on yes. prime soon right yeah the end of the month 28th yeah i actually went to look i was like oh i watched that and i was like oh damn it, it's not out yet um how 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 has that been like like how did you do you just feel like this is where i belong yeah do you know what it is it's like like you said everyone's been labeling labeling but it's all over the place because i didn't know for how long i was gonna be i didn't i didn't know what i was and i just started being like do you know what i'll just show you because one day i might be a miserable cow the next day i might be a bowl of laughs and being a clown for the day so why can't i just be all of it i'm all, i'm sick of being told oh you've got to fit down the sexy bracket or you've got to fit down the silly bracket i'm like fuck off like i'll fit down whatever bracket i feel like on that day and so the good thing is about this year is that the press can label me what the hell they want People can label me what the hell they want from what they see anywhere else. Like social media, I suppose, is a bit serious. I, I kind of put like serious things or promotion of the books or films. But I've got to go in and do a comedy with Keep Calm and Carry On. And that was great fun. And that's when I can be my silly self and I have a great time. Then I did Strike on the BBC and that's a very serious role. So there you go, have for some of that. And then at the end of the year on Apple TV, I've got a dark comedy um, wow. coming out called Hammer Home. And it's like... All these three are so different. So now I'm going to put all this out within the end of the year. And now you come and tell me which one you tell yeah. I fit in because I fit into all three of them. So, <laughs> so it's, what you're honestly, do it's, 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 it's so, it really is inspiring. Um, the fact that you've, you've kept so true to what's on the inside and, and who you are and pursuing this career when I'm guessing you've had, you've had no's. Tell me about those, those no's at that time where you're like, this is what I want to do. Have people said, oh, I think you should stick to this or, oh, I don't know how I'd cast, like, tell me about those. Yeah. So I've had so many people, even like bloody people I was supposed to be in relationships with say, oh, you're never going to get, you know, your acting job might never happen or, or you're never going to get, if you've done MTV, you really think you're going to get BBC. And I was like, I don't know, because I can't tell you what's around the corner. Funnily enough, the first big, big network job I got was BBC. So I was like, some of that. But um, (laughs) (laughs) but I just don't, I've never really, even when I had my terrible problems with depression and all, you know, real bad self-worth, I never really understood the word no. Because even to get into Italia Conti, I remember I auditioned and I got a no. And I remember being at my normal school, I was about 12, 13, and I was sobbing. I couldn't, I had to go to the special needs room because I couldn't function all day in class. And I, they sent me home and I was like, inconsolable. So, but I was like, well, that's a no now. So let me just phone the school. So my mum's at work and I'm just at home on my own using the telephone. Like, hi, is it Talia Conti? Yes. I've just auditioned and you've been told no. But I was wondering if I drop down a year and re-audition, would you consider me then? Can I re-audition if I drop down a school year so I do extra learning? And they were like, well, you can always audition. So I had a date for six months and I was practicing day in, day out, day in, day out. And then I got in and I got the full scholarship. So I was like, I've never really understood the word no. I kind of like think, okay, that's just a barrier and I just go around it. And I, I think I lost a bit of that after all the troubles when my nephew died and then when I went blind, I lost a bit of that. I thought, what's the point? Because at that point it was really severe depression because of what had gone on and it was just too much for a 17-year-old brain. But since coming back to myself, where I started reading again, started learning scripts, started doing things that I did back then, I've started that back up again. And no, isn't necessarily a no, it's just find another way to do it. That way is not going to work. And I don't really let up on that. Like I, I, I wrote a book, I'm on my second one. I, I went to theatre school and I was told I was an idiot. Like I was down a year at school and I was still in the lower grades. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to just write this book and see what happens. You don't know what you can do until you take each step to do it. I was told no by all the publishers. So I wrote my book anyway. So then I was like, well, let's send it out now and got a publisher. So I was like, ah, no one can tell you what you can and can't do because we can learn infinitely. If I wanted to learn Italian, if I put two hours aside each day for the next two, three years, I'd probably be fluent in Italian. It depends what is valuable to you and what you want. And then you don't take no from that. So, I mean, I, I, that is just, I, I love that. And I know it's in many ways so obvious to so many people and I will probably make it a class thing, but it's not. I think it's a me thing. It's probably my family thing. If I got a no, I was like, oh, I'm not meant to do this then. Like no was such mm. a, a common word and it was like I needed permission to do anything and I know Elizabeth Gilbert in her book Big Magic she talks about you know here's write yourself a permission slip you have permission Mm -hmm. to do this and actually listening to Marie Forleo's podcast the other day she had um, 
one of those, you know, very uh, business coachy, inspirational people who, you know, I'm always a little bit skeptical of some of their stuff, but you know, his book is called put your ass where your heart wants to be kind of thing. It's like, if you want to do something, if you want to write a book, just write, write the bloody book. Like no one's, yeah. you, don't, you don't, I don't think you have to go anywhere. You just, you've done yeah, it. You don't need a publisher. I think we think, yeah. oh, where's it going? And also we're very aware of having to be a bit business savvy about things and we don't mm. want to waste our time. We don't want to waste our energy. And I mean, I was talking about this even with my friend that her, her half brother, he's sort of raised much more middle class than she was. And when he gets told no, he goes away and writes a bloody PowerPoint presentation and then presents it to his parents. Like, this is why I should be able to play that 18 <laughs> certificate game, even though I'm 13 or something. If I was me as a kid, I would have got a slap around the head. <laughs> like, we've told you no. What is wrong with you? Yeah. So I got trained very quickly that, like, no... <laughs> well, no, it's going to be quite dark now. But yeah, um, no means no. If it's me asking... But if I'm saying it, then it could be yes as well, you know. <laughs> yeah, like... well, you know, I had I had similar, like, my, my nana always used to be like, no, it means no, and no, I mean. And my mum would do that, and I'd be like, okay, well, I'll just do it, I'll find a little way. Get hiding sometimes, of course. But but I think um, I think it's just, you, if you know you want something, we've, I remember we, uh, listening to Will Smith, and he said about thought versus responsibility. So we're getting trained by people that aren't necessarily healed, they're, projecting their trauma onto onto us and then that because it's been taught to your nan then it's been taught to your mum then it's been taught to you so you have to break that generational curse and like stop that trauma from going into your life and then further down into your children's lives and it's not the easiest like healing's been one of the hardest things I've ever done but the most rewarding because before I'd be like oh I've been told this so I'm just gonna go out and get drunk and then I have a week feeling like crap and then it just be there, still be there but at least now five years on from when I first kind of started this looking at myself I can actually see a difference in my life and where it's going and what I can do with it. Because before, like, as I said, when I was a kid, I had that no doesn't mean no attitude. But when I came to the depression side, when I got to my 20s, that was... I was like, well, there's no point in doing it. Sod it, I'm not doing anything else. You start looking for like the reasons why, like, oh yeah, of course I can't do this. Of course it was happening for yeah. me. And it's so hard to, um, when you're in a negative cycle like I mean obviously we're, we're both divorced and after my divorce I think I think I did a lot more I definitely feel like I'm in a bit of a um an impasse an, an impasse yatsi that doesn't work. um <laughs> at the moment like sort of spiritually and healing wise because I think I um I sort of started to do a lot of work after after the divorce and you do you feel kind of open and sort of a bit freer definitely. and like wow anything can happen and you realize you know you start to put the pieces of yourself back together again um, mm. But then I swear, I swear to God, relationships just like, <laughs> right, we're going we're gonna to hold it right there. <laughs> relationships, I think that was the one thing I will regret more than anything is putting too much time into that and not myself. Because when I felt depressed, I needed someone with me. Mm. And then they caused, I was going for people that were violent, that were abusive, or just cheaters or, you know, mm. and, but then I wasn't healed. So I was it was me it's a distraction in a way as well it's some exactly. weird kind of if I focus on the pain you're causing me right now all the other stuff doesn't matter yeah um I wonder whether we do want to bring it back to um back to your dad um I know it's just a sudden switch um <laughs> what has that sense of loss been like given that you know he wasn't a regular fixture in your life how because obviously when people usually grieve it's a kind of they were everything to me. They did this, this, and this, or, mm. you know, my dad was um, my hero. And what is that like now? I suppose I take the lesson from it because what I've learned, I know people say, oh, my dad was my hero and he, he was always there. So I learned safety from him. I learned this, but he still taught me so much because he taught me, and this may sound negative, but it's, it's definitely not meant to be. He taught me what happens when you lack self-love. And I think that's almost more important because you can have a hero dad and him be there for you all the time. But then what happens when a man breaks your heart and you, you don't know what, you never really felt that before. And I learned that when you don't have self-love, how quickly your life can decline and be, you know, and then turn out how, how he did at the end. And I think the, the a great lesson from that was, watching that I learned so much from him like just to, to love myself more so that you don't take I learned all the little tiny decisions you make them little tiny ones can spiral so if you make tiny ones that are positive how much it if you can spiral down you can also spiral back up you know uh, I learned that from him I also learned 
emotional intelligence from that. I learned to realize that this isn't about my dad not loving me. This is about my dad not loving himself. I know he loves me. I learned so much positive from what could be perceived as negative. And without him, I wouldn't have had that. So when he passed, I was devastated. I was really holding his hand, watching him take his last breath. It's not a very nice thing anyway. But it, I just, I, I felt in a way I'd done everything to put that love there. So he knew it when he, when he was gone and it taught me more about love again, more about how to love someone that can't love themselves. And I do feel a massive loss because when he moved into the hospital, I'd see him, it wouldn't go a week go by that I I wasn't in for an hour just chatting nonsense to him. And, and it, I, I do feel like I miss, I miss that because it, it, you know, he was a part of my life as in like, I had to do a lot of things for him. When he got in such a bad state with his with his illnesses, I was relieved for him to be out of pain at the end. Um, you know, you, you could just see him declining very rapidly. And it, it it's a loss as in when you lose a parent and it's, you know, 33, I think it's quite young to lose a parent. Anyone that's lost parents throughout their life, there is a gap missing. But that gap that was there for 10 years got healed in that one year because I learned stuff from him and I realized more love is more important than anything. And no matter what, I mean, it's it's a hard one because there's people in my life that I'd rather not have around because they, they only bring me pain. But my dad brought me pain, not in a way that he was intentionally hurting me. He wasn't conniving and doing dangerous things because there are then people in the world and when you're an empath and you want to help everyone and you're a caregiver it's very easy to get trapped by real narcissism and I always say that word gets thrown around but those people do exist and you've got to find a balance with what what is going to hurt you because someone is actually trying to hurt you rather than someone that's not yeah, there are some people who take some pleasure from making other people yeah. hurt and it's a control. And there are others who just don't know how to handle their own pain and get quite destructive with that. What about, um, I mean, what about his personality? Like growing up, are there any sort of fond memories, like daddy, daughter moments or jokes that made you laugh? Or Yeah, like dad, dad used to always take me swimming. So he, he taught me how to swim. He taught me gymnastics. He was very into to that so like if I go around his house the weekend he'd help me backflip and one time I kicked him in the head and was knocked him out <laughs> but you know little things like that and it would always go to Butlins that was in he'd always because he lived in Bognor it was always take a friend down we'd go to Butlins and there was you know there's there's so much that, and that's what I mean he did really love me I was the apple of his eye he did everything for me that he could that he knew how to you know back then and I will always you know, loved those moments. It was just, unfortunately, he had an addiction to alcohol and that that destroyed a lot of his life and it didn't destroy my life, but it made me lose someone that I could have done with. But at the same time, I learned from it. So it's not a bad, there's no bad in any of this. Yeah, I know, you're, you know, you're always looking for the silver linings and it's that you you could you could just as easily as you've said been deprived of that final year with him and that at least he like you said that ability to feel loved is so important even if he couldn't really express his own love maybe didn't have the words to express that he could feel your love either yeah yeah a lot of people don't have that I mean I don't want to make this about me in any way I have I haven't spoken to my dad in years and when I hear stories like yours um, and a lot of people and a lot of my friends have very ruptured relationships with their fathers and we are constantly balancing that guilt of doing what's best for us at that time and and the impending knowledge that, yes, they're going to die and how will I deal with that and how will I help them mm. and, and, and and what does that say about me and what can I do? And, and it's really hard to get out of, you know, those feelings of guilt and shame and duty and feeling like you're not a good enough personal daughter or you're not dealing with... Yeah, you're not giving the love and it's hard to to do it without, like I said, taking a piece of yourself or, or draining yourself. Um where did where did the anger go like in your 20s where did it go um when I was in my bad place yeah where did you so I went to I was actually gonna ask you as well like yeah what's your relationship with alcohol now the mad thing was is when I was in that place it was like go out have fun date men I would I would always be looking for male attention always same I still do the reason I was yeah the only reason I was going out was get dressed up so males would talk to me and then I'd drink so I had the confidence to talk back and, and it was just a rapid cycle and I'd meet someone meet someone in that headspace you're not going to meet someone that's decent because I wouldn't entertain you in the first place because 
you know they can see your disruptive cycle heal person they can spot someone that's not yeah. they have a radar so I would do that and then all of my problems became about the boyfriend and then like you said earlier it's you know you it all gets a distraction so that's your only problem but actually it's not the problem is the problem itself and not not what you're doing about it and I'd stick into this routine and I wouldn't drink all the time it wasn't like I had an alcohol problem but I had a problem when I drank so I couldn't do two nights in a row because I'd be so hungover because alcohol's never really agreed with me I'd, I'd get really unwell like as in there's hangovers and then there's like four or five days out I can't do anything but then that that kind of was good in a way because I'd do the one blowout but then I'd be ill for the week be better and then I'd go out again so it just kept a cycle that was repeating and repeating and then I'd make more stupid mistakes when I was drunk which then caused another problem to look at and I could always look at that problem rather than the actual crux of it and I think a lot of people do that I've got you know people in my life now I've only just realized that's what's been going on with them and they're like crap I need to go into the depth of this which they've been trying to avoid their whole entire life and the only problem is I always use this expression because it sits well in my mind, but you can sweep stuff under the carpet, but then you keep adding to that. It's going to come out the other end. Yeah. And yeah. that's what it did. I had, I hit rock bottom. I just went boff and then it all come out at once. And that was after my divorce. And like we were saying just before that it's a freeing time because at that point I had to look at myself because I thought I do not want to live like this anymore. I am constantly a tornado that I'm just ripping through my life and ripping through other people's. What am I doing? And it's that sudden realization, oh, it's actually something going on here that I need to address. And you don't know what you don't know. You can't you can't address something you can't put your finger on. And it's not until sometimes when you break down completely that you can see it. And I just got sick of my own shit, to be yeah, quite honest. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. sick of my own shit. I was like, why am I in this position again? And I'd be like, well, because you married this person or you've done this with this person and that person's cheated on you or this person, that's why you're feeling like this. And it's like, no, I'm actively going for people that are doing this to me why am I doing that and then you start to heal yourself and you avoid certain things and that's again a whole learning thing because if I've never done that I've got a whole year or two of trying to figure that out and breaking out of people dating people because dating has, has always been a hard thing for me I, I never knew I never had anything really long term even my marriage was only a year long and and it's clearly something I'm doing as well whether that be I'm actually to blame or whether I'm actively seeking people that do do that to me it's still my problem to fix because it's, no one else is going to fix that for me. So it's just figuring that out as well. When you do have a realization about yourself, you don't suddenly just, doesn't just stop. You've got to find yourself in the pattern to be able to break it. See, I feel like I'm over aware of patterns now as well. It does, um, does Curtis's head in. I'm constantly like, mm. oh, we're we doing this because of this. What dynamic are we in here? And he was like, I've never had to think this much about myself and why I'm doing things in my entire life. And, yeah, um, well, that, that is the thing you do overthink the pattern because I'll be in a, I'll be in something like I'm in a relationship and I'll be like oh am I doing this now and I'm like just stop because unless you're feeling physical pain there's, yeah. there, there are elements it's not just black and white it's a whole gray area yeah and you have to know that you're never going to make yourself perfect and you're never going to have that relationship where everything is sort of sorted out and settled and and you're also like I you know I'm not a fan of leaving things unsaid but sometimes you do have to sometimes there's a couple of things you're like let it go let it go and it's just, yeah I find it exhausting to know which things are worth exploring and which things are normal and you get like a real a real anxiety around it and sometimes just a complete hopelessness because you're like okay yeah. well, what is what am I even and then you look at yourself from the outside and you kind of think okay well if I do this like for me my life I've been obsessed with routine I have not mm. ever been in a routine I can't do it I dated a German once who was German as you like had been in a routine for nine years. His life had been the same for nine years. Every, yeah. like, it, and I was like, I've managed two weeks. Two weeks is the most I've ever managed to go, I'll do yoga every morning or I'll write in my journal this morning or whatever. And so I've always been obsessed with that. And I know it's just this fixing from the outside because you think, well, if I'm, you know, like I remember like I was at school, I made a timetable down to the five minutes. It was like, right, I'm going to mm. shout this time, I'm going to eat this time. Because my yeah. life and my brain just felt so chaotic and it felt so exhausting to just feel like everything's constantly on the edge of unravelling. And, and, you know, are we meant to just be a bit broken and be okay with that as well? Like, yeah, um, I think so. I think we're a bit hard on ourselves a lot of the time because I, I do this, the writing down my diary to the minutes. Like, <laughs> but I find when I, I used to put 8 a.m., and this was recent as well, 8 a.m., lemon and ginger tea, 8.05, 5K run, 9 o'clock, coffee. It's like a Cosmo spread, isn't it? It's yeah, like I, I was literally doing that. 
And then I thought, okay, well, this is making me feel a bit anxious. So I checked everything off by two o'clock and then I'm just sat here. Like, so now I just like what I need to do. And as long as that's ticked off at some point in the day, I don't give myself a time frame anymore. Because when you do that, I think that gets you you more panic because you're like, oh, I haven't hit it by this time when actually you don't need to hit it by that time. So we, yeah. we need to be less hard on ourselves on, on what we what we expect of ourselves. And sometimes routine doesn't go in order. Sometimes it does. Like for me, routine was very helpful in the lockdown because I was getting up and kind of giving myself a structure. I'm not very good about structure, the same as what you were saying, but I very rarely get to stick to a structure. Yeah. So as long as I can put some things in the day, it doesn't necessarily now need to be at a certain time as long as I fit that in. And sometimes I just got sorry, can't fit that in now because I've done this. So we'll get rid of that. But, you know, I think we just get so caught up in making sure we're getting everything correct that it actually makes things incorrect <laughs> for yeah. our heads. Yeah, I've, I've, I've kind of, I'm going through a stage where I'm like, maybe, maybe this is what I'm doing a podcast. It's like listening to people and then I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I can I can do what they're doing and I can copy this, basically just find a personality for me that works. Find um, a routine. Um, yeah, I can't um, still have it. I think there's been so much change as well and lockdown has like changed up everything. We're like, ah, uh, what was I? What was normal life? And we're adapting to a new world again and will that change again? And, and I know life is just, you know, it's a series of different phases and you have to just adapt and be resilient is the word but I'm like oh god sometimes I just want to like stay in a mud hut somewhere in the middle of nowhere or a cottage I do in the think country. this sometimes I'm like do you know what <laughs> when, when when we access all the news and we access all these different stories and the, the next drama that's going to kill us all off the next monkey pox or the next energy crisis the next storm that's going to wipe us all out I can't I just deleted the news yeah. apps because I was like this is ridiculous and it makes you want to start a commune somewhere, grow your own veg yeah, and just yeah. get on with life again. I think the problem is we have got ourselves into this overstimulated life. So, you know, I, I said this the other day to my friend, back in the day when we were just 40 was old to live till. Do you remember that? Like, yeah. well, we don't remember. But, you well, know, when we were kids, we thought 40 was old. Like, it, it looked people old People actually used well. to die. 60 was like, you got into your 60s. That, you yeah. know, back in the day, I'm talking like old, old times, Victorian times. Yeah, think, 200 years ago, I think, was in the... Yeah, it was like when people would die young, what we'd perceive as young now. So, but they didn't have all this stuff around them. So they'd spend their lives in purpose. And it would be like, if you was a farmer, it would take so much longer to put your crops in. It would take whatever yeah. time to do this and your whole life is based around that but now we've got all the gadgets things to make everything so easy that that can be done in a day that would take them two years before yeah. maybe longer and then suddenly so that's done now what's next what's next and we're just we're trying to hold things to give us purpose and it it kind of gives us less meaning to ourselves yeah, yeah. so we're getting we're getting more products to make things easier and we're getting more time to do it and we're doing it all in less time. So then we've got this whole big span of stuff that we need to fill our time with. So then our brains start going overdrive. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. And you're watching everyone else do it on the news, on this and on that. And then now we're in an absolute crisis because it's all gone mental. I, I just think, yeah, everything, everything that is wrong with my life is to do with social media, whether it's the hours I spend, like hours. And I'm not, I'm not a proper, I sort of try to be a content producer, but I don't do it enough. And I'm like... And it is an ADHD thing. When I tried Ritalin for a bit, it went down straight away. Mm. My screen time. But my screen time has been, there have been days where it's been like nine, ten hours just like feeling shit about yeah. myself. And it also, it's like stimulates my brain to go, oh, you should do this. It's a, in a weird way. It's like an inspiration. But you're like, do you remember what it's like to just go out and bump into people and say yeah. hello? And like, and yeah. I, I, I think yeah. social media has been quite damaging. I mean, there's there's pros to everything and cons, but it's designed to keep us on that app as long as possible. Yeah. And I know that when I'm not disciplined with myself, I can spiral. Like, I don't look like that. I don't look like this girl. I don't. And then I'm like, no, you don't need to look like that girl. And, it, you know, I dread to think what it's doing to our teens, our young girls. Yeah. It, it really does frighten me. Like, I look at a lot of young, my niece's friends and that they'll, they'll scribble out their faces and put a picture up. And I'm like, how messed up is this? And the social media companies... This is the problem. It's everything's so new. Nothing's policed. Nothing's really governed properly. And I think you know, you, you trial by media now takes another form because it's one person could put a fake tweet up and yeah. suddenly that's gospel and then outraged and you're cancelled. I think it's a real dangerous thing we're in. I can't, you know, by me talking about it, there's no answer for how to fix that. This has to be from the giants, mm. but nothing's being done about it. 
we're damaging so many young people and people middle-aged elderly the lot I do believe that you know these face apps I've been back in the day I've you know thought I was gonna look that picture so I'm gonna do a bit of an edit and then I'm like I'm editing myself for what for some people to look at this picture it's 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 actually scary what it does to the brain so I limit my screen time oh you're you're very good I try to I have I'm like one of those people that will set a screen time limit and then just ignore it (laughs) yeah ignore 15 minutes I do do that I have to I have to chuck my phone away and sometimes I'll get I got adult coloring books and I'll I'll use that because as long as my hand's doing something I'll be watching like a program and I can scribble and do my drawings and that keeps me kind of from doing that and I get so immersed in that 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 gets forgotten yeah I've kind of forgotten what empty fallow time is you know what I mean Mm. where you just like either do nothing or just literally just do something with your hands like I'm like we are not meant to see what hundreds thousands millions of people are up to at Mm. any one time it is insane imagine knocking on your neighbor's doors like back in the day knocking on all like 300 be like what are you up to what are you up to what are you up to and then just going round and round and round exactly that's what's what's, what's happening but from the from our hands in this phone and then it's too much stimulation for us like you said you wake up in the morning go knock on everyone's door but that's basically what we're doing when we're going on social media and we only get a certain amount of thoughts a day I, i can't remember the exact number that they say roughly we get but it's you know you're getting all these thoughts within the first minute you open your eyes. So my phone, I don't like to touch in the morning. I need to give myself that hour. And if I do mess up and go straight on it, my day is not as productive. So it's just, I think there's a lot of self-discipline that has to come in. And that's a hard thing sometimes, because if you're feeling a bit crappy, you just want to go, I'll just scroll. But it's at them moments, I think you've really got to trick your brain into doing something else and trick it to go have your coffee. Or even just say, well, you can look at it after a coffee. You can look at it after a little run. And when you start doing that, you actually don't want to go on it. If I if I don't go on it that first hour, I'm not nothing on it anyway. But if I open my eyes and go on it, it's game over. Yeah, discipline is. It, it, I think we're like this weird undisciplined generation in a way. Like we either mm. had it quite bad as kids, and then it's like we just have no self discipline. In a well, I, I don't. Mm. Know a lot of people because we kind of like, oh, we can do whatever you want. Like because there's time in the day to to do that three minute job at work that you've allowed five yeah. hours for or whatever. And we can just yeah. I remember when I started at work, it's like. I wouldn't look at my phone during the working day. Like you, no. you think you're not working. And that was yeah. only 12, 12, 15 years ago. But you know, it was an office job. And nowadays everyone is like, you're just on your phone, you're relaxed. And like even when I was at theatre school, it was the old, it was Nokia's or Blackberry's. And I don't even remember at any point having my phone out at school. I don't, I don't remember it. It wasn't even a thought. It didn't, it, I didn't even think about it. It's so hard to, to tell whether this is like, this is the world and it's not as damaging as we think and it will be okay in the same way that my grandma told me that her dad didn't like to use the telephone. Like he, the, you know, the old school mm. um, home <laughs> telephone because he was, no, no, you go and you go and see people if you want to talk to them. Yeah. Um, and I know things have changed like, like yeah, so exponentially and, you know, you know, I don't know what's next in five, 10 years. Um, it's going to be crazy. But also maybe it's like the whole point of remembering, yeah, the giants have never cared about humans. They cared about money. We've never been like the reason for the telephone was not, I mean, I know like uh, the, it wasn't to really help connect people. But yeah, the marketing side of it is not just it's good to talk. Um, but that just feels so old school now. Imagine if we just had maybe I should just get a house phone again um oh my love this has been it's been so so nice to chat to you honestly you it's too. All, you're always such a ray of sunshine and I um I always go away just feeling really like motivated and um <laughs> and inspired because we I know we have like kind of have similar similar backgrounds and similar kind of points in our life and similar aspirations yeah. and and yeah you 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 are you're really inspirational and I hope I hope that young like I hope you do stuff for like young teenage girls as well because I think you're sort of the voice they need to hear as well really thank you um I am um yeah I'm so sorry to hear about your dad thank you so much for talking to me about that it's yeah again very like heartwarming heartbreaking and heartwarming but yeah you always like said like your book always put a silver lining on things thank you so much you are just uh, always so generous with your time and um and emotions and uh and advice yeah very um yeah i'd say very generous is kind of like you all over so thank you so much jess um thank good you luck so with much. the launch of, of keep calm and carry on and um, yeah i'll chat to you soon <laughs>